Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I was out really late in Barcelona and coming back and I bought a big wheel of cheese at a little bodega. And I came out and some guy robbed me the knife. He put a knife to my stomach and basically took my wallet, my phone, tried to take the wheel of cheese, but I wouldn't let him have that. And then I had to basically go on this work trip, you know, first international experience, just got robbed, didn't have any money or phone. But, you know, that really didn't turn me away. I really wanted to keep trying, keep doing new remote experiences, keep traveling even after that. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Zach Boyette. He is the co-founder of Galactic Fed, a multinational remote-first marketing agency that he built while traveling the world and scaled to nearly 100 staff in under three years. Galactic Fed provides companies with a suite of services ranging from copywriting and paid media to SEO strategy and analytics. And their clients range from Fortune 100 companies to startups and small businesses. Zach is a full-time digital nomad who has had no permanent base since 2016, and he has traveled to over 50 countries. Zach, welcome to the show. Appreciate it. Excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here, brother. We are unfortunately not in the same place today, but we have in the good tradition of the Maverick Show each brought a bottle of wine to the table that we're going to be drinking through over the course of this episode. So I am currently in Asheville, North Carolina, recording this today, and I have just opened a bottle of Australian Shiraz. Where are you and what are you drinking? Well, let's start with what I'm drinking. You know, in getting back to my roots traveling through Argentina, I'm having a nice Malbec right now. Going to try and get through as much of this bottle as I can on the chat today. Matt, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm up in Williamsburg in Brooklyn in New York City right now. 
Nice. I love Brooklyn, love New York City, have some really good friends in Williamsburg. Actually, I stay there a lot when I go to New York City. So let's go all the way back though now, Zach. I'm really curious about your background and maybe let's just start with where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? And what kind of entrepreneurial tendencies did you have as you were coming up that put you on this trajectory? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, So I grew up in Signal Mountain, Tennessee, small mountain outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. I love it there. Super beautiful. Really enjoyed my time growing up there. I wouldn't say I did uh, a whole lot entrepreneurial related until, or not to a significant degree, at least until college. I went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville. My first kind of two major entrepreneurial ventures, one was a student-run newsletter called Recruiter Panda recruited about 20 students to help me write a blog. I didn't really have any revenue goals in mind and didn't make much, (laughs) but it was fun along the way doing that. And my second one was a do-it-yourself drag and drop website builder for people to make personal websites like zachboyette.com called Rexy. This was around the time when Squarespace, Wix, Weebly, those companies were getting big. So I coded the entire thing along with my co-founder, Marissa, basically taught myself Ruby on Rails, how to code. I was coding for like 16 hours a day, all of senior year of college, and then into my first job. I actually uh, had this couch that I would sit on and code all the time at uh, Cincinnati, where I was at for my first job, that had a hole in it from the cushion from just sitting there so much coding basically all night. So yeah, that, I'd say those are my first entrepreneurial ventures. And so from there, what was your trajectory? After college, did you go into the corporate world or straight into entrepreneurship? So I tried to do both at the same time as best I could. When I graduated school, uh, you know, all my friends were going to senior year beach week and going to have fun down in Panama City. Me and my co-founder went to a hackathon (laughs) instead, which was pretty nerdy, but fun. We really enjoyed that. And then we lived in Nashville for a couple months after school, you know, when everyone else was traveling Europe and stuff, and just coded basically all day. And that was a lot of fun. I realized from that first venture that, you know, it's not just all about making the perfect product. It's not about having the most beautiful code. While that is extremely important, you know, if you build it, people won't just come. You really need to focus on marketing, sales, those sort of things are, are quite important. So that's what I got into for the rest of my career. So I was running that company while I was in Cincinnati working for Procter & Gamble. And I, I really enjoyed my time there. I really liked the people I worked with, but it was a bit too corporate for me, I would say. I'd always been really interested in technology. And if I knew if I didn't, uh, you know, if I wasn't doing the, the entrepreneurial thing full time, I wanted to be in the tech space at least. So I went and worked for Google after that. Uh, Google was really great, enjoyed my time there, but I guess that was my last stay on the corporate journey. How was that working for Google and where were you when you were working for Google? Can you share a little bit about that experience? Yeah, for sure. Google's great. The people I worked with, some of the smartest in the world, of course. I mean, they recruit, you know, top talent from all around the world. I was based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is actually a lot of people don't know, but this is the the third largest office that Google has. The first being San Francisco, the second being their New York office. I really loved it there too. It was it was not the traditional, uh, you know, Bay Area based Google experience where you're on the large campuses and take the bus and such. But I loved it because we had nothing else to do up there but hang out with each other. You know, you're in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's a college town. So there's not many young professionals. So I got really close with the other Google people there. And I'd say my quote unquote Google alumni network is very strong as a result of that. 
but you know, I really, really enjoyed Google, but I knew that I was still interested in the entrepreneurial path. And also increasingly important in my life at this point was the remote work path. I think I mentioned this to you pre-interview, Matt, but I discovered the Digital Nomad subreddit when I was in college. I'm a big Reddit guy. I've been there for 10 years or so. And I just remember thinking like, wow, like, how is this possible to be able to travel the world and work and have all these interesting experiences? So I knew that this was something I was interested in. And then one of my Google colleagues said that uh, this company, TopTal, had reached out to her and was like, hey, we're looking to hire someone to run our paid media team, but we're a fully remote company. And I was like, wow, that is what I want. So she introduced me. I had this crazy week where uh, I had this very tough interview process with them, case studies, you know, quant exam, multiple role-playing interviews and such. And at the same time, so I went ahead and reached out to Remote Year just to get that ball rolling too, since I'd heard about them. So I was doing these interviews for Remote Year for TopTal at the same time and uh, got into both of those, got into my Remote Year group called Kaizen and uh, TopTal at the same time. Let's definitely talk about that. And for folks that don't know, Remote Year is a program that you and I both did. And we actually met through some mutual friends in the Remote Year alumni group. And Remote Year is a 12-month program where remote working professionals can sign up and participate. And Remote Year, the company, facilitates a 12-month itinerary where you travel the world with the same group of people, might be 40 or so people, and you live in a different city each month and you go all over the world. We were on four different continents over the course of the year and you have, you know, you do side trips and things like that. So you really see an enormous part of the world and Remote Year facilitates all of your travel from place to place, all of your accommodations, all of your access to co-working spaces. They have full-time local staff on the ground and facilitate things to do. And all of that stuff is provided for you as part of the program. And then you pay a monthly fee to participate. So you and I both did that program. And before we get into your experience on that program, I am curious about how much international travel you had done prior to remote year and what your decision-making process was to do remote year. Because I'm always super curious about other people that made the same decision that I did to travel the world with a group of people that you've never met for an entire year. So I would love to hear what it was that made you make that decision and what your travel experience was like prior to remote year. Right. I mean, it is a a crazy bunch of self-selecting people who do remote year, right? Especially in the, you know, early programs like you and I both did, Matt. So I actually never had traveled internationally. I guess I did like two cruises with my family. But besides that, I never traveled internationally at all through college. My first international experience, so I worked for Procter & Gamble, like I said, and I, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Europe a few times and Asia a few times with them which was really cool, really spoiled me. I was business class (laughs) each time, again, first time out of the country. So I I got used to that lifestyle and then fell flat on my face when I got out of it. (laughs) But, you know, I made sure I took the time while I was on those trips after the work components to do some personal travel before and after. And, you know, my, my first ever international experience, I flew to Rome early prior to starting the work trip with P&G. And then I went to Barcelona afterwards. And 
I was out really late in Barcelona and coming back and I bought a big wheel of cheese at a little bodega and I came out and some guy robbed me the knife. He put a knife to my stomach and basically took my wallet, my phone, tried to take the wheel of cheese, but I wouldn't let him have that. And then I had to basically go on this work trip, you know, first international experience, just got robbed, didn't have any money or phone. Luckily, P&G was very kind and, and helped me out with that. But, you know, that really didn't turn me away. I really wanted to keep trying, keep doing new remote experiences, keep traveling even after that. That's awesome, man. So you were able to land a fully remote job and then you got accepted into the remote year program. So what was the remote year experience like for you? Where did you guys go? Maybe share a little bit about the itinerary and what were the highlights for you? How was the experience? Yeah, I mean, it was without a doubt the best decision I've ever made so far, I would say, doing remote year. It was a a huge catalyst for the current lifestyle I have for trying to focus on freedom and independence and travel as core pillars in my life. Itinerary, man, we went all over, just like you. (laughs) We did four months in Europe, four months in Asia, four months in Latin America. So Europe, that was uh, Croatia, Prague, Lisbon, and Bulgaria. Asia, that was Vietnam, Thailand, Japan, and Malaysia. South America, it was two months in Colombia, then Peru and Mexico City. It was amazing. I, I loved that experience so much. It, it was just really great, too. I don't know about you, Matt, but one of my favorite parts of doing remote years is just meeting other people who do that lifestyle, right? Meeting other digital nomads, meeting the other like 2000 plus people in the Slack where we got remote year, you know, prior to this, I had never met, actually, I met one digital nomad in Chiang Mai on a fun trip after a work trip to Asia. But besides that, I never met anybody who did this lifestyle. And it's kind of hard to believe that you could do it or that it's like a real thing if you've never met anyone who's done it before. Did you have that same experience too? Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, anybody that is going to make the choice to travel the world with a group of people that they've never met and they're going to leave everything behind, friends, family, community, all that, and commit to doing this upfront for a year without meeting anybody, at minimum, that is an interesting person. And it's a person that I want to meet and I want to hear their entire story. Yeah, I totally agree. And it was, you know, one of the most interesting groups of people I've ever met. We had people from, you know, Australia, Latin America, Peru, uh, you know, South Africa, all over the place. People spoke multiple languages. For some people, English wasn't even their primary language. So it was a good diverse crew as well, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. And I've interviewed a number of people from my remote year group, in addition to other remote year groups on this podcast. And so Maverick Show listeners know a number of people. For example, Jen McGee was in my group who runs an architectural design firm. Oh, nice. Remotely. Yeah. While traveling the world. <laughs> That's interesting. She has like Fortune 500 clients. Her clients are like Saks off Fifth Avenue and wow. Sharper Image and Barnes and & Noble. And her company won an award for designing the duty-free shops at JFK Airport in New York City. And she does it all remotely while traveling the world. So I interviewed her over a bottle of wine in Prague at midnight. We just turned the microphones on. And I was like, how are you able to do this while you're traveling the world? So those are the types of people I have on this show. You know, another woman from my group was Tiffany Green, who is a professional real estate investor that makes her money and finances her lifestyle from her passive rental income from her rental properties. Oh, I know Tiffany. Yeah, we uh, we met up in Istanbul. Oh, nice. 
Nice. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So those are the kind of people that I have on this podcast and get into their stories and exactly how they did what they did. And I'm curious with you, Zach, when you got into the remote location independent digital nomad lifestyle, as you said, you had seen it and you know, you you thought it was completely epic and you really wanted to do it. And then you finally got into it. And I want to know how you were able to then balance the lifestyle design with actually doing the work that it takes to maintain this lifestyle and to build your business, because that is a lot of work. And to be honest, that's one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of people make, right? They sort of figure out some way to get into this lifestyle and then they just, you know, go all in on the lifestyle stuff. And then they just don't put in enough work and they can't sustain it. And a year later, they're, you know, they're back to wherever they started, right? So how did you balance and negotiate and navigate the lifestyle and the work that you had to put in? Yeah, that that's a fantastic question. That's similar to you. I'm sure I saw some people in my remote year group who viewed remote year more as like my my year abroad, right? Like I never studied abroad and this is my chance to do it. And so for some people, I don't fault them at all, but I think their priority was more like, you know, doing minimum work and maximum fun, which again, I don't fault them at all. If this is their their year, they're going to do that, then go back to, you know, New York or SF or LA or something where they live, then that's, that's great. For me, you know, I discovered this lifestyle in college. Uh, for me, I viewed remote year as like my intro to being a long-term forever or as long as possible digital nomad. So for me, work always came first. I've always been a very disciplined, work-oriented person anyways. And I would, I just feel like bad if I'm not working very hard. So I'd say I was like always kind of, you know, first in the co-working space, last out. I remember a lot of nights in uh, Kyoto, Japan, <laughs> me and uh, a few other people were like, you know, late night, 5am crew getting getting 7-Eleven sushi and sleeping until noon. So behind the, the glamour of Instagram and stuff, it is a very strange lifestyle sometimes, especially, especially in Asia, I'd say it can be quite tough uh, if you're working American time zones. But, you know, at the end of the day, what's really important to me is just putting work first, always, no matter what, you know, if, even if I have some really cool festival or event planned or something like that, if, you know, uh, some issue comes up with my team or clients or something like that, I will always put that first. And I think that's allowed me to really continue to to grow in this sort of lifestyle. Because, you know, if you don't do that, then everything else falls apart, right? Like, how can you fund your lifestyle if your work isn't being put first, if those pillars are falling out? So what are some of the most memorable places where you've taken business calls? I mean, I have a number of them and it's also like, or I've been in a group, you know, in certain places where people from the group, I mean, this is one of the most amazing things about remote year, right? Like people are like running businesses and also <laughs> doing epic stuff, you know? So if it's like, yeah. we're at this rooftop lounge in Malaysia and it's midnight and everybody's like a couple bottles of wine in and all of a sudden somebody's <laughs> like, oh, I got to go close the deal. And they're, you know, yeah. stepping out at midnight on this, you know, trying to find a, a quiet place away from this rooftop to like close the deal. Or we're like, you know, on a street art tour 
in Colombia and somebody's on like a conference call on their phone while the graffiti, you know, artists are giving us, I mean, it's like, you know, people are <laughs> yeah. like, that's just kind of like the experience. But like for you, yeah. what were some of the most memorable places where you had to kind of like take a business call or, or do something relating to business? Yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing. We, we've all been through that, right? And like it's calls or it's trying to push a commit to code or it's, you know, all sorts of these experienced people have who, the ones who put work first, especially, you know, definitely juggle this situation a lot. <laughs> Off the top of my head, one interesting kind of week for me was right around the time when I was starting or really ramping up Galactic Fed, I took a road trip with my brother, Sam, in Iceland. And we were did this whole awesome kind of Jeep drive around the ring road for like nine days or something, uh, did the whole island. And I, my brother was driving and I was like working on my computer next to him the whole time. And our car broke down and I had to sit in this like rest stop porta potty type situation in Iceland. And I was taking like one of the most important calls to my career at that point, like talking to a potential new client that was really important to me. And there was just people like literally going to the bathroom, like feet away from me. <laughs> so I'm like, what is going on here? You know, this is, is this sustainable? But it worked out, you know, I, I got the client and things went really well from there. You know, all, all sorts of random things, Matt, right? Like I was in the Philippines recently doing scuba diving training and got out of the water, just saw some whale sharks and, and some turtles and all sorts of beautiful stuff. Came back up to the little hut where we were doing our training and saw like four Slack messages and immediately had to walk down the beach shirtless and take a really long, intense phone call there. I got a ton of stories like that. It's every week. I, I'm sure just like you, Matt, you get used to this, right? Like it's, you begin to, to expect these sort of things will happen. And for better or for worse, you got to always have your phone nearby and be ready to, to hop on these calls and, and to make work your priority. A hundred percent, man. Yeah, totally agree. And Maverick Show listeners know a bunch of, you know, my guests have all of these kind of stories. Our mutual friend, Sean Tierney, who's been on the Maverick Show, told this story about how literally the biggest client he ever closed. I mean, we're talking like <laughs> Fortune 100 company, like biggest uh -huh. sales deal he ever closed. He closed it in a Moroccan bowling alley. That was, I mean, <laughs> Love it. I mean, I mean, you know, and then, and then he said the DJ, you know, the, everybody knew what was going on and they knew he was on this huge sales call. And when he gave him the signal that, that they had closed the sales call, his friends told the DJ in the bowling alley and then they played, <laughs> all I do is win, 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 oh, win. And they played awesome. all the So they, yeah, it was crazy. So like you have amazing stories like that, right? For remote right, year. Right. Yeah. I want to also ask you one of the places that you told me that you have been, which is not on the remote year itinerary, but which is one of my favorite countries in the world is Brazil. And I would yeah. love to hear about your experience there, where you went in Brazil and what your reflections were on it. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I was there for probably about 10 days or so. So not quite as long as I'd like, but I, I definitely plan to go back soon. So every winter, every New Year's, actually, I take a, a trip to South America with a couple of my college buddies. And so we've done Puerto Rico, we've done Panama, we've done uh, Colombia, we've done several other places. But this year was Brazil. And it was amazing. We did Rio and Florinopolis. So we happen to be in Rio for New Year's Eve, which I don't know if you've been there for New Year's, Matt, but that is like the place to be for New Year's. Everyone goes out to the beach in Copacabana and wears all white. So I was wearing like white shorts, I think, and a white button down or something like that. Literally everybody is wearing all white. I believe there's something crazy, like 2 million people, seriously, 2 million on the beach that night, this massive, really long beach that stretches into the horizon, basically, as far as you can see. And everyone goes out at night 
And it's just this massive street festival, like so much fun. And they do this enormous firework display that's like as far as you can see, like panorama left to right. Um, so much fun there. I actually had to take a call though, like walking to the celebrations that night. So that was a little, you know, another interesting one there. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I went down to Florinopolis as well, which is like the kind of like beach clubby capital of, of Brazil, which was a lot of fun as well. I don't know if you've been to either of those places yourself. So I have not actually been to Florianopolis yet, but I have been to Brazil three times. And Brazil, of course, is enormous. I mean, it is yeah, a huge, absolutely enormous country. And there's so <laughs> many places in Brazil that are amazing. I, I went to Rio for two months. Oh, wow. Nice. And that was my first time in Brazil, right? And Rio was so amazing. Yeah. I was there for 60 days, right? And it was wow. so amazing that I literally didn't even take a side trip to see any other part of Brazil because I wow. was like, I was like, who would leave Rio? Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to miss a day of this. It's too epic. <laughs> like, literally. Yeah. You got the mountains, you got the beach. You have everything. I just wanted yeah. to savor every moment of it. And what I did was I was there during Carnival. So this was probably like five oh, years wow. ago, right? Oh, no wonder you didn't leave. Yeah. <laughs> So, but I wanted to see, I wanted to see Carnival, but I also wanted to see Brazil in non-Carnival season, right? Because Carnival sure. is very different from normal. So I went for two full months, which included Carnival and then post-Carnival, right? And I wanted to live in two different places because I wanted to have the beach experience. So I lived for one month on the beach in Leblon, right? Which is right next to Ipanema, which is then, so it goes Copacabana Beach, then Ipanema and then Leblon, right? So I right. lived right on the border of Leblon and Ipanema for one month on the beach. And then I lived up in Santa Teresa for a month, which is, you know, back off the beach. And it's really this like epic sort of bohemian music art centric community. And it's up on the hills. So you can see like Sugarloaf Mountain and like all of mm. this amazing views and stuff. And, oh, you know, it's m much less touristy right there. Right. And so I wanted to have that local experience and kind of be in that type of a vibe. And both experiences were amazing, you know, and it was really just incredible, but I literally didn't leave Rio. Right. So then, you know, I'm traveling around. It was actually in remote year. I was traveling around. I did that before remote year. And then I'm traveling yeah. around a remote year and people having their friends come in and they're all world travelers and this, and you know, we have the, what's your favorite place you've ever been conversation. And somebody's like, <laughs> of course, somebody's like Sao Paulo, Brazil is my favorite city in the world. And I was like, real as really well-traveled person. Right. And I'm like, yeah. really? She's like, yeah. I was like, you've been to Rio. She's like, yep. And I was like, you've been to, you've been to Tokyo and Istanbul and like, all that. he's like, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And Sao Paulo is my favorite city in the world. I was like, really? I was like, why? <laughs> and she's telling me why I was like, that's unbelievable. I got to go. So literally yeah. as soon as my remote year program ended in Buenos Aires was our last city in Argentina. And I just booked a flight alone, just me from Buenos Aires to Sao Paulo direct. And I just went by myself to Sao Paulo and I just went on these street art tours and like, I just immersed in the culinary scene and it was just blew my mind. Sao Paulo had so much love for it. And then I went back again, Sean Tierney and I actually went together nice, and got an Airbnb together. And we, we were in the beach towns a little more North. So we were in like Pipa and Jericho Cuadra and Puerto de Galinas and those kind of places. And Tierney brought his kite surfing gear, brings it over on the plane with him, you know, and he's kite surfing <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, man. But like each time I go, I just feel like this really magical energy and vibe. And I was like, wow. I was like, yeah, Brazil is just, it's really something quite special. So I love finding other people that love Brazil, man. It's amazing. Oh yeah. I really want to go 
back there. And honestly, hearing you describe that is really making me miss this lifestyle a lot. You know, I'm ready to, as much as I'm loving hunkering down in the States, I'm ready to get back to Latin America and all around. hundred percent, man. One thing I'm curious, your perspective, I love solo traveling. I think it's one of the most magical things you can do, especially internationally when you're, you know, there's nothing, nothing like that. Like you're, you're forced to either sink or swim, right? You can either, and at the same time, you're forced to kind of choose what you want to do, right? Like if you don't want to go to the Eiffel Tower, then just don't go to the Eiffel Tower. If you want to have spend your whole time going out and like drinking all night, then you can do that. Or if you want to just spend your whole time journaling and reflecting, you can do that. And some of my personal best travel memories are from solo travel. I don't know. Do you have the that similar experience? So that's a very interesting question. And I appreciate your perspective on it. And this is actually going to get us into I want to also ask you about your your sort of the way you design your lifestyle and your travel cadence and stuff. But let me sure. sort of answer this first, you know, so some of my travel experiences have been solo for exactly the same reason that you said, right? Like, I wanted to go to Sao Paulo to do very specific things, right? Like, Sao pa- like I love street art, right? Like graffiti art. It's one of my favorite ways to, you know, experience a city and just sort of see a city through the eyes of the street artists, you know, not... And not corporate and governmental sponsored street art, but like real kind of graffiti art. And so cities that have yeah. a really incredible street art scene. I'm really interested in that and going to see those. And so, you know, you've been to Bogota. Did you go on the graffiti tour in Bogota in Candelaria? I was just thinking that. Yeah, that was like one of the coolest pieces of graffiti, like everywhere I could ever, I've ever seen before. It was amazing. Right, right. Anywhere in the world, right? And so Sao Paulo is absolutely at that level, if not higher, right? Because one of the things I did on that tour, I was like, listen, man, this is ridiculous. Like the street art scene in Bogota is like bonkers next level. And I asked the the guide, I said, you know, where would you say if any other cities could compete with Bogota, who would you say could compete with them? And there's two other cities in South America that he said, in his opinion, could be at that level. One is Sao Paulo. And the other one, I don't know if you've been to, uh, is uh, Valparaiso in Chile. Have you been there? I have. I love the opera zones. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> it's totally amazing, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Take me back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So I'm like, okay, I'm like, I've been to Bogota and I've been to Valparaiso and yeah. Sao Paulo is arguably better than both in terms of the street art scene. Really? Wow. Yeah. And so that's the first thing. And then the other thing is that other than Lima, Peru, where I know you have been, the culinary scene, mm. right? In terms of the food, other than Lima, Peru, Sao Paulo is pretty much regarded as hands down the best food scene on the entire continent. Really? Right. Lima and Sao Paulo are the top two. Yeah. So I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you have won my heart in terms of the street art, in terms of the food. I was like, I got to go. Yeah. You know, and it's almost like, you know, somebody actually explained it this way. And I think you could sort of make this analogy since you're familiar with the U.S. cities, that Rio is more kind of like the Los Angeles of Brazil, whereas Sao right. Paulo is more like the New York City New of York. Brazil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go there and you're just like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're like, I get that. So it's like it's inland, there's no beach and all that, but you're just like, oh man, like everything that I love about a city, like this city just has it, you know? It's like the way you feel yeah. like when you're in New York or like whatever. And so I wanted to do very specific things there. So like I went there by myself, I booked a private tour of the street art, right? It was like a full day tour because they have like, 
really epic stuff there. And some of the stuff, like you can only get there by car. And like, I had my driver, like would take me up to like these places where there's like this insane street art, but it's like, you can only like drive by it. Like you can't walk there at all. And yeah. like, I would jump out of the car and like jump over the rail to like, and then they would like loop around and like pick me up. You know, I would be like right. taking pictures in the meantime and stuff. So like, I wanted to do that kind of stuff. Right. So I'm just right. like, I'm just going, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to these restaurants. I'm going to see this stuff. So to that extent, yes. I mean, like I do appreciate that, but for me, that was a short trip, right? Like the other thing that I do, which is I think thematically consistent with what you're saying is that when I go to a particular place, I want to roll in a particular way, right? And as you're saying, like, if there's a whole bunch of people, you might be friends with somebody, but they might not like the same particular thing that you do. Like, maybe they're not that into yeah. street art, or maybe they're not that into, like, this type of food or that type of club or whatever it may be, right? Like a wine situation. Maybe they're not into wine or whatever, right? So, like, for me, when I'm going to go somewhere... It's not always that I choose to go solo. A lot of times I will choose to go with other people, but I will select those people based on people that want to roll exactly the same way that I do and yeah. have that level of appreciation for the same things in that context, right? Yeah. So like two summers ago, I went to France and I just spent a month going through the wine country in France. Oh. <laughs> right? Like we went to wine festival in Bordeaux. We went to Burgundy. We drove the route de Grand Cru in Burgundy. We went out to Corsica, went to Paris. Like, we, you know, but it was just a literally a month long wine trip. So there are particular friends of mine that really would appreciate that. And those are the ones yeah. I went with. You know what I mean? Like those are the For ones sure. I invited. We organized a trip together. We went together and we experienced and appreciated it together. Now, you know, I will also go to, you know, like last year I spent five months in Africa. Three of those months were in West Africa. And like I wanted to roll in West Africa in a very particular way. I wanted to, you know, hit the nightlife scene and do particular things, you know, and experience certain music and, and different stuff. And like I went with people that really were passionate about that. Tiffany Green, by the way, was one of those people. We went to Nigeria together for a month in, you know, in, in Lagos. <laughs> yeah. But like Tiff Green, like she had been wanting to go to Nigeria since I knew her on remote year. So I was like, Tiff, yep. let's go to Nigeria. Like let's, she was so passionate about it. I interviewed her on the Maverick podcast from Lagos actually. Right. So oh, wow. uh, in Nigeria. So yeah, it was amazing. Right. But like, it's important, I think to when you're architecting a trip or a travel experience to select people that want to experience that particular place in the same way that you do. And they're going to appreciate the same types of things and want to do the same stuff. And so for me, I will oftentimes do that. But I would love to hear, you know, from your perspective, though, Zach, how you structure your travel, including your travel cadence, because you, I think, travel faster than I do. I tend to be more into that slow travel, like I'm going to go to Rio I'm going to go to Rio for two months, man, you know, like, and kind of do that slow travel pace. But talk a little bit about some of your travel decisions and how you structure your lifestyle and why you do it that way. For sure. Yeah. And, and well, first I want to say too, I, I totally agree with what you're saying about the the crew and the vibe and and that being important to travel. You know, you, you might want to go hike Machu Picchu with a different crew than you want to go to, you know, clubbing in Ibiza with or something like that. Totally, so totally. That's, that's, that's definitely something that you, you learn over time traveling to. And it's, you know, it's, it's all great. Like, you know, you, you meet and interact and, and bond with people in different ways, depending on the, the type of journey you're trying to take together, whether that's with other people, whether that's with yourself, however that may be. Um, 
yeah, talking about travel duration, I, I am, if you imagine a bell curve, right, and the, the, the left side kind of like still towards the middle, but on towards the left is people who slow travel, you know, you spend maybe six months, three months in a place, the middle, the, the middle of the curve is maybe two to one month. I am on the far right. I, I think in the last three or, or so years since I've been doing this lifestyle, I have traveled every, moved locations every seven days on average. And everyone's been telling me like, you're going to get exhausted with that eventually. But I, I haven't, you know, I, I really enjoy it. I, I really am just eager to always experience new things and move on to the new place. And I just have this, this just like constant desire in my mind to like try new things and see new places. So yeah, move, moving locations about once every week. And it can be tough, right? Like trying to find Airbnbs or hostels or hotels or planned trips and, and everything you want to stay in. But I, I view this as like a big passion of mine is finding like the best places to stay, the best places to try. And I'll, I'll typically, you know, I'm not going to fly from Istanbul to, you know, Calgary down to Lima to Cape Town all in the same month or something like that. You know, I'll pick a country, I'll pick a region and then travel around through those areas. But I really just try to prioritize experiencing new things as, as fast as I can, if that makes sense. It does, man. Yeah. And I'm super interested in that. Obviously, there's no right or wrong answer in terms of like how fast people travel, how slow they travel, things like that. And, you know, I'm super interested in in why people make the decisions that they do and, you know, and how that works. But can you talk a little bit about that, right? Like traveling at that pace and at that speed and at that frequency, how do you handle all of those logistics, right? Because there is that travel planning component, which, you know, was one of the things about you know, was nice about remote years because you didn't have to yeah. find your own accommodations. You didn't have to, you know, you get there, the accommodations are there, the co-working space is there. Like they give you an orientation of what the city is is about and what there is to do there. And, you know, you have local connections on the ground from them and all that kind of stuff. So that really took a lot of the administrative logistics off of the travel planning. But when you go to do a side trip on your own, and then obviously, you know, pre and post remote year, when you're traveling at that speed, there's a lot of travel planning and logistics. And a lot of people who haven't done that may not understand is that that takes a good bit of effort, especially if you want to make sure that you're quality controlling your experience, right? Sure. You're always yeah. landing in reasonably good Airbnbs that are in the cool neighborhood that you want to be based in, you know, and like all of that takes research. So you know, how do you factor in all of those administrative logistics and the time it takes to do travel planning when you're traveling that fast and also being able to experience, you know, the place that you're in? Yeah. So I'll start with the second part of that question, which is experiencing places where I'm in. Um, I, I really view like the magic in travel for me personally, this, this stage in my life at least happens basically as a frequency of new opportunities and events. So the more I can meet new people, the more I can try new things, the more I can maximize my exposure to newness is really important to me right now. And you can definitely get that staying in a place for a while. And arguably, of course, you you dig in deeper, you have a longer term relationship. And there's definitely diminishing returns to both that and moving around a lot. But I've found that moving around a lot has it just it, it makes this weird time warp, right? Where I look back on the three months I spent, say, in Asia this past roughly November through end of January, and I'm like, that felt like a year. You know, that was that was a really big, long piece of my life because of all the different things that I tried. Administratively, I'm not gonna lie, it's a lot of work. <laughs> you know, uh, 
I'll say though, at this point though, I'm really used to it. You know, my life feels almost empty when I'm not planning for the next week, the next trip. And I, I will often plan it out in chunks, right? Like I'll be like, okay, this next month I'm doing a week in Panglao, Philippines, scuba diving. And then I'm going to Jakarta for a week for a music festival. And then I'm going to CM Reap to do the tours there. And then I'm going to Bangkok to meet up with some friends for a conference or something. That's a sample itinerary from my last most recent Asia trip. So it's not always like I'm, you know, planning the next week, you know, three days in advance. So I'm able to book a little bit out. And also since I'm doing the accommodations for a shorter period of time, it's often easier to get a good spot, you know, for a less amount of time than if you're staying there for longer. So that that helps out. But yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a, a good amount of administrative work. I would say one thing that's super helpful, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, Matt, too, but it's just packing what, what you're working with, right? I'm a big, like, you know, carry-on only and backpack guy. I really shy away from having big bags at the check. Really important to me. I actually, uh, I'm a big fan of, like, merino wool type stuff since that's you know, easier to to wear off then and doesn't wear down as much and has some good properties. And I was actually <laughs> quoted in a Wall Street Journal article called My Month of Filth, which is really an uh, unfortunate title for the, for the interview I got. But basically, this guy was talking about people who travel and wear merino wool clothing and like how you don't have to wash it as often, that sort of thing. For the record, I wash my clothes, you know, after everywhere. But I really am a big fan of the merino wool type stuff and like really trying to travel hack. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. The stuff that you're, you know, the gear that you're working with to make your lifestyle easier there too as well. You and I are 100% on the same page. I actually do <laughs> presentations at Nomad Events on minimalist, on minimalist packing. Right? Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I do this sort of stylish minimalism is what I call it, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, okay, I get it. Like you could just bring like a pair of swim trunks and four tank tops and a pair of flip flops and just travel around to a bunch of different beach locations and just be kind of, you know, grungy and, and, yeah. and whatever. And like, and like rock that. But I'm like, no, no. I'm like, I never check a bag. It's carry on only. Yep. But my carry on includes a Hugo Boss suit, Farragamo shoes, oh, wow. because I like to roll like that on certain yeah. occasions. And I can also go skiing, right? So like yeah. the last year of my nomading before COVID, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I started that year out skiing in the Austrian Alps, right? And then I went to beaches and then I went to, you know, formal kind of like, you know, high-end, like dressy events, right? Yeah. 
And so, I mean, we went to like a, this like bonkers, epic speakeasy in, in St. Petersburg, Russia, which yeah. is like suit and tie dress code only. I mean, it's like this straight out of the prohibition era, like dress code enforced, cash only, leave no trace, <laughs> like, like legit speakeasy. Like it was bananas, right? But like, I want to be able to roll to places like that or roll to like the Mandarin bar in Tokyo or like, I want to be able to dress for the occasion, whether that's dressing up, whether it's beach gear, whether it's skiing, you know, and I want to be able to have the versatility to choose and do any of those things. And I never want to check a bag, right? So I do workshops on how to do that, right? How to travel with carry-on luggage only without compromising fashion and style and how both, you know, men and women can do it, right? It's not just like for men is easier than women or whatever. Like, so it was really funny because the first time I did it, it was just me presenting this thing. I think I presented it on the Nomad Cruise and a bunch of women were like, oh, you know, it's easier for you because you're a guy. I was like, actually, I know a number of really well-dressed women that do it as well. And so yeah. like the next time I did that presentation, I had like a couple of women that like come up in the Q&A who also travel with Karen only and are quite stylish and well-dressed women. And like right. we all answered questions collectively on it, you know? So like that's really becoming quite a thing. And I agree with you 100%. Merino wool is a very core component, you know, to the ability to do that um, and the versatility of that. And Merino wool is now evolving. You know, I mean, it was initially it was difficult to find things that weren't just like, you know, T-shirts and base layers and, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. But now, like, I mean, I have really nice dress shirts that are 100% merino wool, right? Same, yeah. I'm a big wool and prints guy. I don't know if that's the brand you, you go with, but for sure, this, they make a lot of good stuff. I've gotten, Libertad is one of the brands that I use. Right. And so it was really funny. I, I did a keynote address at the Nomad Summit in Chiang Mai for over 400 people. Oh, uh, I did that this past year, actually. Did you? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, with, uh, yeah, our uh, Johnny FD's been on the podcast FD, twice. Yeah, yeah people oh, know nice. Johnny. Yeah, exactly. So, it was hilarious though, because I was doing this presentation. It was mostly about how I built and run Maverick Investor Group from, you know, and I've run it from 50 plus different countries at the time, right? Now it's like 65, I think. Right. And my company is a real estate brokerage, right? So how do we help people buy rental properties in the United States from different places while I'm living in different places around the world? And it's, it's a, not a traditionally virtual business category, right? So I was doing a presentation mostly on that kind of lessons from doing that over the last decade. And the final sort of tip was just kind of a fun throwaway thing about like, you know, how to travel the world with carry-on luggage. And I gave the merino wool tip that you just gave, right? And I was like, actually this dress shirt that you see me wearing here on the stage is actually 100% merino wool, right? Yeah. It's a really nice collared long sleeve dress shirt you could wear with a suit or whatever. And it was hysterical because I was literally, I did this entire keynote presentation on the business stuff. But then after the presentation, when people just surrounded me for like additional <laughs> questions, almost all the questions were about the merino wool. And I, and I have like a picture of like six dudes, like, hey, can I touch that shirt that you're wearing? And I'm like, right. have like six guys like rubbing my shirt, rubbing like touching shirt. the merino wool. Cause he's like, that, that dress shirt is really merino wool. Like, let me see that. So like, it was hilarious. And then I'm like, you know what? There's a huge interest in this. I'm just going to do a fun presentation on it. So I was actually supposed to present this year, 2020, 
at the uh, Nomad Summit in Tbilisi, Georgia, which has now been canceled, but I was scheduled to present on stylish minimalist packing really? at that at presentation. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, man, but Johnny's a very good friend. He's been on the podcast twice and uh, you know, it's a great, great event that he runs. That's awesome. Yeah. I met him in Chiang Mai back in January. I think it was. Um, that's awesome. That's awesome. I, I, I love that. I, I think that's so cool that you're able to, to flex the, you know, the merino wool as, as a part of it and have people interested in that. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a great like pack to work with. It's a great thing to, to reduce your wardrobe. And totally. I, I totally agree with you too on that. I'm, I'm not a, uh, you know, Hugo boss suit guy, uh, in my suitcase myself, sometimes a blazer. Um, I'm actually pretty impressed you're able to fit that along with everything else. I've found that, uh, those, those typically take a lot of space, but I'm, I call it more like utilitarian cheek or something like that. You know, like, need to always be able to look good, you know, the focus isn't on just really like kind of weird dorky looking square shorts that are like a weird technical fabric or something like that. You know, you need to be able to have versatile stuff that you can look like a normal person, you know, because the whole point of doing this lifestyle is that you're like, you are who you are, where you are, right? So you're not like, you know, augmenting your wardrobe and like looking like you you wouldn't care to present yourself just because you're traveling. Cause if you're traveling full time, then that's who you are. Right. A hundred percent. And the agility that it gives you is mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. psychologically liberating. Yes. It's extraordinary. Like when you're able to dissociate yourself from the societal pressures to accumulate material items, <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're like, and you're like, you're able to literally say, all of the material items that I need are lit. They literally fit in a carry-on suitcase, right? Yes. <laughs> and then you also had the agility to like wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I think I'm going to fly to another continent later today. And yeah. you can just pack up, go to the airport and fly to another continent that day if you choose. Like when your right. life has that much freedom, and you have that much agility because of a combination of the location independence that you've created for yourself and also the minimalism that you've gotten your life down to in terms of material items that you don't need to spend time packing up enormous things and, and all this. It is unbelievably psychologically liberating, I find. I, I completely agree. It's 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 a it's a weird thing too, right? You get used to it and you're like, this is what it is. But then you I don't know about you, but especially in, in, you know, coronavirus times, quarantine, I've, you know, like gone back to my parents' house for a bit and been hanging out there and that sort of thing. And I'm just like, I have access to all these clothes now. And I'm like, it's like stressing me out. You know, I'm like, I have to do so much more laundry. I just have more choice and choice isn't always a good thing. You know, if, if you can self-impose a lack of choice because you choose only the best things, I think that just makes your life a lot easier. I agree. And you restrict yourself. You physically restrict yourself from accumulating items because if you literally only have a carry on suitcase with you and you're like, I can't buy or shop for anything in this (laughs) city unless it's going to fit in my carry on, which means it's either going to replace something that's there or it's going to be so small that it's going to fit that I can't actually buy anything like that also is quite liberating because what it does when you move your attention off of the accumulation of material items is you tend to then focus on the experiences, the memories, and the relationships with human beings that yes, you create. For sure. Completely agree. You know? Yeah. So, 
Yeah. So I, I think it's a hundred percent. I mean, for me personally, it's been a hundred percent like really liberating and really allowed me to focus on those other priorities in terms of those experiences that I'm having. And it's like, and sometimes I have expensive experiences like on purpose. Yeah. I'm not like a budget traveler. Yeah. In some cases I am right. But in other cases I will like splurge on very expensive experiences, but I'm able to do that because I'm not buying whatever material thing that somebody else is. I'm not buying like the new car or the yeah. new like giant TV, this and that. Right. Like, so therefore I can go to the, three Michelin star restaurant in San Sebastian in the Basque country. And mm -hmm. I can order it with the wine pairing and pay $450 for a dinner yeah. because I didn't pay $450 for whatever material stuff that normal people are paying for, you know? Yeah. So like the ability to do that and have very expensive experiences instead of paying for very expensive things. And now, however many years later, I could still tell you with vivid detail about this Michelin star dining experience when I had a dinner that took eight hours. <laughs> you know, Are you serious? And I still vividly remember every detail of it versus I spent 450 bucks on like whatever, like new pair of clothes or this or a purse right. or whatever, you know, whatever people buy, you know. Wait, eight hours? Did you take a nap halfway through? <laughs> that's, that's a long time. Wow. It was unbelievable. We left at the restaurant at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Can you invite me next time you do something like this, please? <laughs> I'm in. I am telling you, man. And it, to be honest, too, like Remote Year was one of the places where I actually learned about food. You know, mm, I yeah. wouldn't necessarily consider myself a foodie before I went on Remote Year. And I would never consider paying, you know, $400 for a dinner before I went on remote year, like to be very honest with you, I would have been like, that's crazy. Who in the world would do that? You know? Right. But when I went on remote year, I met people that really understood and I appreciated food. And I started going out to dinner with them and we started, you know, and we were in these different countries and the different countries, as you know, specialized in extraordinary different food and all these different countries food. we went to. Yeah. And I was learning to appreciate it. I was learning about it and all of that. And finally, you know, now I'm at the point where, yeah, if you're talking about, you know, a particular situation, there is a situation in which I would pay $400 for a dinner with wine pairing if it is at a particular level and the experience is at a particular level and all that. You're talking about three Michelin star best restaurant in the world to have that type of experience. You know, that's something that for me is more valuable than a $450, you know, material item of you know, whatever somebody else might normally buy, right? Totally. I'm not buying the TV, yeah. so I'd buy the dinner, right? Totally agree. I, I think that that's a great point you just hit on too, just the not having like a, a primary place to live or, you know, not having like this place to constantly furnish with new stuff, not having to buy chairs, beds, you know, TVs, headphones, coffee machine, new dishwasher, all these different things. That stuff really adds up, you know, and and you know, sure, you pay for the Airbnbs and these sort of things, but those come with cleaning. Those come with all sorts of other savings that really allow you to just focus on the experiences you have, which are really what what the traveling is all about, right? It's, it's meeting people, it's experiencing things. Those are the two things that really matter the most. Yeah, and you and I are not double paying for these experiences. Like these are not vacations, right? right like for me, right. also that whole liberating experience of getting rid of a primary residence or a permanent home base 
And then just, you know, wherever I am, that's what I'm paying for in terms of accommodations. That's where I'm living. That's the extent of my overhead in terms of my expenses. And as you know, Zach, most places in the world are dramatically less expensive than the United States. So you're currently in Brooklyn, (laughs) which costs exponentially more to live there than it would cost you to live in Thailand or Vietnam or. Yeah, I I haven't been able to find a. A meal under $20 in Uber Eats here, you know, that's at least two a day. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. That's exactly right. But if you were in Thailand, you would be able to go to highly revered, critically reviewed restaurants and get a seafood entree for $3. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I mean, and and sometimes the best, the best places when you're traveling too are, are the places on the street corner that doesn't even have a name or not a listing on Google maps, but it's just incredible sticky mango rice or something like that. hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. So that's the thing also that people can understand. Like a lot of people are, are pursuing this nomad lifestyle also because it's so much less expensive. If you don't have a permanent base to maintain and you're just paying accommodation expenses, in Thailand or Vietnam or wherever you are, it is so much less expensive to live there that, you know, entrepreneurs and business startups and all that kind of stuff, you can just go and have those living expenses. And if you're building a fully remote company, your overhead is so much less and you have so much more runway and therefore less stress in terms of being able to build it and generate the revenue you need to cover your expenses and and scale it in a, you know, sustainable way, which also Zach now brings me to, you know, I would love to ask you a little bit about the founding of Galactic Fed and maybe just start with what was the impetus that inspired you to start Galactic Fed and then talk a little bit about the founding of it and, you know, the development of the company. I've always been really interested in marketing. As I mentioned, I got out of the my initial startup. We kind of failed due to a lack of finding traction and product market fit. So my, my career has been really based around that since then. I, again, I ran the, the paid media team at TopTile, that company. And after that, I was like, I really love this digital marketing stuff. I love Google ads, Facebook ads, SEO, this sort of space. But I really want to do this for, for more people. Like I, I want to have a more scaled impact. I want to be able to help a lot of different companies grow. I, I see the impact I've had at this this one company, these other companies I've been with. And uh, starting an agency made a lot of a sense for me because of this. You know, I'm, I have a lot of experience in this space. So I knew I was leaving TopTal to start my agency. I you know, told my colleagues at TopTal that I was doing this. And actually, my current co-founder, Irina, once we, we left TopTal, I found out she was also trying to start her own agency in the same space. So I focused on what's called paid media. She focused on what's called SEO. So it made sense for us to join up and join forces together. And we'd only actually met once in real life at an offsite uh, in Florida, which was a, a ton of fun. It was like a big, you know, whiteboard sesh with kegs and, you know, jet skiing around sort of very classic startup experience there. And that was the only time we'd met before, but we kept in, in good contact since then. She's brilliant probably the smartest person I've ever met. She's actually a physicist at CERN, where they discovered the Higgs boson prior to starting uh, her SEO journey. You should take her on this podcast sometime, Matt. She traveled from Taiwan to Afghanistan on foot, on ground, hitchhiking basically the whole way across the entire Eurasian continent. And just a very interesting journey too. So 
really similar ideals. You know, we're both very like mathematical kind of, you know, that sort of approach to things and very interested in travel as well. She recently, uh, for example, did charted this course from Istanbul all the way down to Ethiopia. Again, traveling by boat, I think, mainly down the Nile and spending time with like villages and stuff. Village tribal leaders, I believe, in, in one of the places she was at. And she bought this like uh, satellite internet box and it was working the whole way. Didn't miss a single call for Galactic Fed. Anyways, so yeah, we, we both left the company we were at and we were like, this makes sense for us to start up together. And then it was a, you know, it was a dance of us being like, are, are we good co-founders? We've never done this before. She came to Tennessee and we hung out at my family's lake house for a bit and just kind of like talked about the future, what we wanted out of business. And then we went up to Chicago where she's from and spent some time there just chatting about what the future would look like. And then since then, it's been a very uh, remote journey for both of us. I mean, we're both very into the idea of asynchronous online text-based communication. Irene and I probably only chat maybe once a week or every other week on the phone. You know, our whole company is really run with a priority and a bias towards written communication on Slack and email, which I believe has really enabled us to grow very fast. You know, both that and also just the, the remote aspect because we can hire the best people in the world wherever they are as fast as we need them without worrying about office space or finding talent or poaching talent from the city that we happen to be in. You know, we have people from from all over the world working for us, which has been just really great for us and really enjoyed. But yeah, I mean, it's it's been a ride. It's it's been a it's been a big journey for us going from the early days, you know, hunkered down in her house in Chicago, building our like crappy little early WordPress website to you know being able to invest a lot more money now into making our brand bigger and more relevant and you know engaged in the discussions around marketing that are really happening nowadays. Well, can you share a little bit about how you have refined the services and offerings of Galactic Fed? What exactly do you offer specifically to businesses now? Yeah, for sure. So what we call ourselves is a growth marketing agency. But what I mean by that is, you know, there's some marketing agencies out there, you know, Mad Men style or something who really focus on getting eyeballs, having a big splashy campaign that's like really cool and people talk about and you know, more of a PR focus and just driving people to, to look at you and recognize what you do. That's important, of course. But what we really focus on is revenue growth going from, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 to 4,000, 8, 16, 32, 64, et cetera, thousands of dollars of spend per month and really scaling up your business as fast as possible. And there are several other several ways to do that. But we found the, the top one is, is digital marketing. So we do almost exclusively paid media and SEO. So paid media refers to basically all the online ads you see. That's Google ads, Facebook, Instagram ads. That's LinkedIn, Reddit, Quora, Twitter, etc. And SEO is the uh, basically what you see on Google. So you the organic results. You type in buy red Nike shoes and you see a listing for that. That also goes into writing content, blog posts, um, you know, all, all sorts of things that really help growth hack companies from zero to one. And we, we've scaled what we offer over time, but we really try to... Actually, one of our core pillars is hyper-focused in our zone of genius. And we really try to stick to that. You know, We know what works well. We know what helps companies grow. And that's what we really try to stick to. What would you say, Zach, are some of the biggest mistakes that companies are making 
in these areas? Like when somebody comes into you, you know, they might be like, Zach, we've been trying SEO, man. You know, it's not <laughs> producing the results we want. Or like, we've been trying the paid ads on Facebook, man, and it's just not producing what we want. Like, and then you get into their, their, their stuff and you start looking at it in terms of why it's not producing. Like, what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes that companies are currently making? And how are you guys able to deliver service that actually works? Because let's be honest, most of the people that are trying to do SEO stuff or that are trying to do Facebook advertising are not getting <laughs> a super impressive ROI. Why is that, Zach? Yeah, and I'll tell you too, there are a lot of other, a lot of agencies and stuff out there that, uh, uh, you know, use strange tactics that typically don't work, which often turns people off from this sort of industry as well. I'd say some of the biggest mistake, I'll start with the the advertising side. Again, that, that paid media I mentioned. So that's Google ads, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, etc. One mistake people make, which I don't really blame them, is is trying to go in and do it all themselves with no knowledge of how it works. And, and you got to think, Matt, this pay media side, you're literally paying Google or paying Facebook or paying whatever money to per click. So you're saying like, you know, I'll pay $5 per click every time someone searches for buy red shoes or something like that. And, and Google and Facebook have spent a lot of money. Again, I used to work at Google, so I, I know, you know what's going on there, uh, trying to convince people that they can do it themselves. That they can go in and set up marketing campaigns themselves that will you know produce a lot of money. And sometimes it works, right? Especially for local businesses, easy stuff. But people try it out on their own for complex business models, for B2B SaaS, for other strange type of things like that that require a lot more complexity and fall flat on their face because it's 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 quite complex. You know, it's not just choosing your keywords and writing your ad copy. It's, you know, how do you engage with your users? What's the type of messaging you want to use? Um, how much do you want to pay? How, you know, what are the right strategies you take? And people spend a lot of money on this and get bad results and get really nonplussed with it. So I say one big mistake is just, you know, not having expert help, obviously not trying to just plug ourselves here. But you know, even if you're not at an agency level, just hiring like a small local freelancer or something like that to help you get things set up, I think is quite important. Some other mistakes too, is just this sounds super generic, but not being like just real with your brand. You know, people will read all the right articles about how to write ad copy, how to write good content, how to do SEO. And then they just have this like boring templated stuff that's like, you know, to use an example for for ourselves, if we were writing boring stuff for our blog, it might be, you know, top five ways Google is changing its algorithm in 2020 or something like that. It's like, there are a billion articles like that out there, right? People want to see things that are more authentic and story centric and like have a real, you know, narrative driven around them because that's what people like to read about. You know, humans tend to think in stories, tend to think in, you know, A to B to C, not just this kind of boring generic templated stuff. So we see a lot of that as well. Right. So what is the experience like for a business, right? Let's just say like a small business owner comes into you, they're interested what is their experience going to be like with Galactic Fed? How personalized and customized is the experience that they're going to receive? How do you work with your clients? Yeah, so we basically like internally, the way we think about it is we want clients to feel like we are a part of their team. You know, like we don't want people to, to get the feeling that we even have other clients when our account managers are working with them. So say you hire us to run Facebook, Instagram ads for you. We would be the people who work with you to figure out what the message should be for that, 
We would write all the ad copy for you. We would help you do the graphic design to make the ads. We would help figure out the people you should be targeting, like the you know the different buckets of personas you want to go for. We'll help figure out the exact you know audiences and chop that down to then Facebook to do it. And then we will run the campaigns over time, make them better, help you grow, and tell you really honestly how things are going. Um, I think another really important thing that Irene and I have committed to is just just being honest with our clients and telling them when things aren't working. Um, you know, there's been many times when we've been like, Hey, you know, we, we try to do Google ads for you guys. And frankly, I just don't think that this channel is a good product market fit for you. You know, I could, I could keep taking your money for the next three months and let you figure it out yourself, but I'd rather just tell you this right now and let you decide. We, our recommendation is to try another channel, but you know, you deserve to know this right now. And we're not just going to try and pump you for more money. Um, and I think that, Clients really value that in us. You know, I think there's a lot of people in this industry who are just trying to get the buck no matter what it takes. And that really reflects in your brand. Right. So there's obviously a lot of digital agencies out there. And how are you guys, when you guys came to market and have developed and built your brand, how is Galactic Fed differentiating themselves in a crowded space? Great question, because there are a billion other marketing agencies out there, and I know that. <laughs> and uh, you know, one of the common things we'll hear, honestly, when when companies come to us is, "Man, we just had a terrible experience in this space. The last agency we hired, how can we trust you? You know, how how can we believe that you guys are different? Sure, you might have a slick sales pitch, and you sound like you're good, but how do we know it's really good? Our focus." Matt, it's really been in the like Silicon Valley startup type mentality, right? That's where Irene and I grew up. You know, we worked at TopDot together. I worked at Google before that. Been doing this startup kind of software engineering thing for a while. So our, our focus is on this kind of Silicon Valley growth hacker type mentality. And listen, it doesn't matter if you are a startup. You can be, you know, K Jewelers or, you know, Shell or these are some actual companies we've worked with, for example who are very traditional industries and normally don't have this sort of mindset when they go into things. But if, if you take this sort of approach of testing small, scaling from there, being really creative and thinking outside the box, that's the kind of approach that we try to take to everything. And it, it typically works really well. And again, like I said, just being really honest and open and transparent with our clients has been really helpful for us. You know, We found that trying to have like a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach doesn't really work in this space. You know, you need to make sure that you're customizing your approach to each client you work with uh, while, while still having best practices. Um, but th that's that's really important for what we've found. Awesome, man. So who is your ideal client? So if there's, you know, entrepreneur business owners that are listening to this podcast, let's say, how do they know if they're the right fit to work with Galactic Fed? Who is your ideal client? What types of businesses are you looking to work with? So I'd say we've worked with, with all sorts of clients. So I'm going to start saying that again from... Fortune 20 down to like brand new pre-launch companies. So we, we have experience working with all, all sorts of them. I'd say like our median, if you will, is probably like venture backed startups who are trying to grow really fast with money they now have. So how do you go from spending, you know, a couple thousand dollars or even, you know, fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollars up to spending five hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars per month? and really seeing your brand take off and grow. I, I'd say the, the biggest common denominator we see is companies who are just willing to grow and willing to try things. You know, The companies that we don't like working with are ones who say, 
our budget is $5,000 or $50,000 per month for this year. And that's it. Even if you guys completely crush it and are doing great for us, we're not going to be able to increase our budget because of XYZ reasons. We don't really like working with companies like that because we want to help them grow. Right, right. Makes sense. So, Zach, let me ask you now, just putting on your entrepreneur business owner hat, you have founded a company, completely bootstrapped it, no outside investment capital, and scaled it from zero, just you and your co-founder, to nearly 100 staff people in less than three years. That is an objectively really impressive achievement. Can you talk a little bit from the business side now about how you did that? And especially within that remote context, right? How did you hire and scale and how do you effectively manage that size of a team growing at that speed? Can you give us some insights into how you did that? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been a ride, you know, definitely some ups and downs there. And I, I think we're just, first off, I, I think that we got really lucky with some of the people we hired or just some of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and I think that's been really important. You know, it's not just a grand genius vision from me and Irina that, that got us to where we are today. It's been the result of all of our employees and, and the people we hire are the reason that we are where we are today. So if any uh, Galactic Fed employees are listening to this, you know, the reason that I'm talking on this podcast right now. It's because of you guys. But I, I'd say the remote aspects has probably honestly been one of the most important things for us, right? Like I, like I mentioned earlier, we can hire the best people wherever they are, whether that's Canada, US, uh, Romania, Philippines, Brazil, wherever it may be. We really try to focus on getting the best people wherever they are. And that allows us to move really fast. Uh, some of my other friends who have more locally based agencies, uh, don't have that luxury, right? They, they haven't been able to scale very fast because they have to find people from where they are. They have to like poach from other agencies and that just really slows them down. Um, I'd say another thing that's allowed us to grow really fast and just keep our employees happy is just that we prioritize employees over our clients. Uh, no offense, any clients listening right now, but I care about my employees more than you guys at the end of the day. <laughs> we, we've actually had to quote unquote, fire a few clients who have just been not really pleasant to work with, with our employees. And I think that's a little bit unique from talking with other agency owners and stuff who typically would try to like hang on to those dollars no matter the cost. But for me, at the end of the day, like I, I, I'm building this company to make my employees enjoy their lives as well, you know, so and, and I think that people have really appreciated that, you know, we've had very, very low turnover, extremely low attrition, like hardly much at all. And that's allowed us to retain a lot of institutional knowledge. It's allowed us to grow really fast. So I think that's been uh, really, really helpful for us. Really try to like practice what we preach too. You know, like we're a growth marketing agency. And I think a lot of other agencies kind of forget like what they do. You know, like they make, they throw up like a website, maybe put a few, you know, a blog post every month or two and call it a day. We really, we really think deeply about this stuff. Like we think deeply about the type of content we produce for ourselves, the partnerships we make how we present ourselves, how we hire, uh, you know, everything is very quantitatively based. We do role plays in our interview process. We have people take, uh, you know, very quantitative tests that show their product knowledge instead of just asking them about their experience. And I think that's been really valuable for us as well. 
Can you just go in a little bit deeper on that, just because we have a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners that listen to the show and are in various stages of building their businesses. Zach, can you talk a little bit just in terms of, you know, from a business owner perspective, in terms of, you know, cash flow management as you're scaling at that speed? I mean, going from literally two people to nearly 100 in less than three years is an incredible rate of scaling. And can you talk about just how you did that in terms of the cash flow management side of things from the business side of things, and also how you were able to build company culture when you're bringing that many people in and they're all in those different places around the world? How were you able to build that galactic fed cohesive company culture dynamic? I'll talk about first thing, the cash flow management. I really try not to do anything that's not profitable. You know, we really focus on making sure we're profitable as a business and as a result of that, like we don't hire new people until it's a clear proven case for it. I think it was like a Paul Graham Y Combinator essay or Sam Altman or something like that that talked about this, you know, just hire when you absolutely have to and not a second earlier. And that's been important for us. I'd say we shifted that a little bit though, as we've scaled up and we're at the point now where we're growing really fast and we need to make sure that we have the talent capacity to where we don't have to turn down clients. So we have been hiring at a earlier rate than we normally would have. But very early in our growth, I'd say we really focus on just making sure that cash is coming in at a higher rate than we're spending it has always been extremely important to Irina and myself. Uh, second question is on building company culture, Galactic Fed. I'm not going to lie, Matt, this is really tough You know, as a remote company. This has probably been one of the biggest challenges that I've struggled with as a founder is building an effective culture for a fully remote company. You know. I'd say in the beginning we were we were almost a little too focused on just like efficiency and leanness and you know we want people to enjoy their lives outside of work so we don't want to obligate them to do all these like random things internally outside of work that would just take up their time but as we scaled I, we kind of realized like that that that's not enough you know like the best people in the world want to work at a company that where they just don't clock in and clock out even if they are able to be remote you know, people want to have a place where they're working with other smart people. They can learn from them. They're doing fun stuff. They're rewarded well. They get feedback. They're like trained well. So that's been a really big, you know, important focus of mine lately is uh, making sure we're looking at our promotion cycles, making sure we're paying people well all the time, making sure we just do like fun stuff that lets people know each other as people. That can be really undervalued in a remote company when in a normal office environment, you kind of like through osmosis meet other people and like learn what's going on. But it can be really isolating. For example, if we're, you know, say we've been building out our our marketing team lately, our internal marketing team for Galactic Fed, like marketing and PR and stuff. And our first hire there, it's been really important for me to make sure that he feels uh, that, he, that he felt interaction and overlap with the rest of our team, right? Because we have some cultures and traditions in the other teams, but I want to make sure that he didn't feel like he's left out of those things just because he's in like a new org on an island. So we've really tried to make an effort to, you know, do cross org stuff to make sure people all get along as a company. For example, we do things like we did like a walkathon lately, recently, which is like, you know, we're all in quarantine right now. We're all vegging out. Let's try to see who can walk more this month than they did last month. And we divide it up into teams and just random things like that are just like a lot of fun you know, and, and help people get to know each other better outside of work. That's awesome, man. Well, one of the things that you said that I really, really like is that you're using 
the same strategies to build your own company that you're providing to your clients, right? Like you built your company from zero to nearly 100 staff people in three years using the strategies <laughs> that you're offering other companies, right? So yeah. they can just look at that and be like, okay, you guys used SEO and paid media and this copywriting strategy and these analytics to build your company from zero to nearly 100 staff people in three years. And you're going to be able to use those same strategies, custom applied to, you know, your client's company to help them do something similar or whatever their own goals are. So I, I really like that. And they can look at what you have actually done and achieved yourself with these strategies and then get them custom applied to the client. So I love that. Zach, all right. At this point, my man, are you ready to move into the final section, the lightning round? Let's do it. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that you have read over the years, really influenced you a lot, highly impactful that you'd most recommend people check out? I'm a total sci-fi nerd. I mean, same with Irina. That's why our company is called Galactic Fed, which you know has some Rick and Morty references. Uh, so I'm going to go with the Red Rising series. It's basically this like dystopian sci-fi futuristic society, big hero's journey type thing. And I just really resonate with that. Like I, I really like thinking like big and futuristic about not just myself, but like humanity as a whole. So I really recommend everybody check out that book. It's like six, six books in a series and I could not put them down. Awesome. All right, man. You've been to over 50 countries and you travel faster than any man I know. So uh, <laughs> what is one travel hack that you've developed over your time traveling that you'd recommend to people? Okay. This is a really simple one, but really nice. Uh, keep your computer on your like home time zone, no matter what that may be. So for example, my computer is always on EST, Eastern time zone. So I just always talk in terms of EST. It doesn't matter if I'm in the Philippines or, you know, I don't know, Lithuania or Latin America or something, I always just say, hey, can you talk at 5 EST or whatever that may be, which is just really helpful for me to coordinate. So when I'm on my computer, I am in EST time zone and that is work time zone for me. Awesome. What is one podcast you listen to or blog that you read, YouTube show that you watch, some content medium that you regularly consume that you would most recommend people check out? Well, everybody's got to check out the Maverick show. I want to say that. I don't know if you've heard Represent. of it, but it's really good. <laughs> yeah. I like Hacker News. I like Reddit. I read the New York Times. I also really like uh, New York Times. The Daily podcast is really good. Wall Street Journal also has a pretty good podcast too. Yeah, I'd say those are some of the main media sources too. I try to stay away from like Facebook, Instagram news as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You have been to over 50 countries and a number of different places within those 50 countries. So let me ask you this. What are your top three favorite travel destinations you've ever been to? Yeah. You know, this is much of me when people are like, what's your favorite place? I, I got a few. <laughs> That's also why I'm not limiting it to one. I'm giving you right. three. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm going to go with Medellin, Colombia. Definitely one of my favorites. Just the weather, the culture, the people, the food. Copenhagen, Thailand is like my just dream paradise, sit in a hammock by the beach on an island, forget about the world place. And uh, I love Kyoto, Japan. That was probably my favorite stop on remote year. Uh, we spent five weeks there. Just the food, just totally different place and just really love Japan. 
Awesome, man. What are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you've never been, highest on your list you'd most like to see. Hmm. So I'm going to start with Cape Town. I feel like everyone in this sort of circuit of life that we live has been to Cape Town and just like makes me feel guilty for never, never having been there. I almost view it as like a Rio type place. I wonder like the mountains and the beaches and like different culture and stuff. So really want to try that out. Uh, Antarctica, um, specifically the South Pole. My, my co-founder Irene and I uh, have this journey in mind we really like to do of an unassisted trek to the South Pole where basically you start on one side of the, the continent and you literally drag a sled of everything you need for, I think it takes like 30 to 60 days and you, you reach the South Pole. And I think a very sub 100 number of Americans have done this. Uh, Irina would be the first Romanian who's ever done it if she were to do it. So we have this plan to do this at some point in our lives. It's, it's wild though. Uh, it's very dangerous. You literally only eat like sticks of butter to maximize your calorie to time ratio. Uh, but how sick does that sound, right? Um, and then Nepal, I, I just, I really, I love mountains. I love like Asian culture. And I think Nepal would be really cool for that. Awesome. That's amazing. All right, Zach, I want you to let folks know how they can connect with you, how they can learn more about Galactic Fed, how they can follow you on social media. How do you want people to come into your universe? Pretty responsive on email, just Zach, Z-A-C-H at galacticfed.com, spelled how it sounds. Also super active on Instagram. I'm really into travel photography and love that stuff. So I'm just Zach, Z-A-C-H underscore Boyette, B-O-Y-E-T-T-E. And then, uh, you know, LinkedIn if you want, but I'd say email and Instagram are probably the two best places to reach me. Awesome. We're going to link all of that up in the show notes. And then if there's anybody that's interested in the services of Galactic Fed, what's the best way for them to contact you uh, from a business perspective? Hit me up, guys, on email, and I'll give you a discount if you come for the Maverick Show. Really? We love that. Uh, what should they do? Just just let you know kind of that they heard about you from the Maverick Show and uh, they'll get special VIP treatment, something like that? Exactly. Maybe the wine talking here, but I'm going to commit to that. <laughs> That's why we have the wine on the show, you know, because That's by right. the end, yeah. when you get to making the offer, you know, I'm more more inclined to get get something special for the Maverick Show listeners, man. So that's awesome, bro. I appreciate that. Clever, Matt. They should just email you and let you know that they heard about you from the Maverick Show. Exactly. Yep. Fantastic. We're going to have that email and the social media handles and everything linked up in one place at the show notes. Just go to themaverickshow.com. Go to the show notes for this episode. You'll have all Zach's contact info there and how to get your special Maverick Show discount. Zach, thank you so much for being here, man. This was a blast. Thank you, Matt. I love this. Uh, Let's do it again. Let's meet up in real life and have some real life wine. Love it, my man. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. 
Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.